ask his blessing upon the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your most holy word, Lord, which is inspired and inerrant, Lord, and we know it is the word of God, and we thank you for it. We praise you, too, that you've given us not only the Holy Bible, but the Holy Spirit to help us understand it and apply it and illuminate its meaning to our hearts. And we pray that he would be here now to help us all, Lord, to grow in the knowledge of your word and to walk in faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to you, Lord, and pray for the blessing now in his name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, please, would you turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah and chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. On Sunday morning, well, Sundays in general, we've been looking at some prophetic themes over this uh, the last few weeks since the beginning of the year. And this morning, we're looking at a very interesting one in Isaiah chapter 17. It says, an oracle or a burden concerning Damascus. And uh, an oracle is a, a, a message from God. An oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aroa will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with none or no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram, which is another name for Syria, will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The the fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when a reaper gathers the standing grain, and harvests the grain with his arm. As when a man gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet some gleanings will remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In that day, their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God, your saviour. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants and plant imported vines, though on the day you set them out, you make them grow. And on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud. Yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. Oh, the raging of many nations. They rage like the raging sea. 
Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee away. Driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. In the evening, sudden terror. Before the morning, they are gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. Please keep your Bibles open there. One of the uh, more famous names from American history, especially the days of the Wild West, is the lawman Wyatt Earp, who certainly knew what it was to grow a moustache, as you can see in that picture there. And he was born in 1848, and in 1871, he was actually arrested as a criminal for hustling uh, and stealing, and uh, uh, stealing horses especially, horse rustling. But someone who... Somehow he managed to escape the long arm of the law and uh, believe it or not, he actually became a lawman, a policeman of the Wild West himself. And he actually was very good at it because, of course, he understood how the criminal mind worked and he was also a very good shot with his gun, which was handy. And uh, so he was uh, very proficient. Well, in 1881, Wyatt Earp and his brother and a companion by the name of Doc Holliday managed to take out some outlaws in a place called O.K. Corral. And he was the survivor of the whole affair. And so he wrote up the history of the affair. In fact, he not only wrote the history, he wrote the screenplay. In fact, he not only wrote the screenplay, he also gave advice on the production and became uh, an advisor to Westerns until 1929 when he died. Well, that has made a lot of people feel very suspicious about the knowledge of the history. If the, if the man himself, who was the, the winner, wrote the story and then wrote the play, and that, uh, uh, you know, how much can we trust it? As someone said, it turns out even the past is uncertain sometimes with the Wild West. And we can understand that, can't we? Sometimes history does seem to be written by the winners, and therefore, how can you tell uh, what really, really happened? Well, in the Bible, we have a unique form of history that we can absolutely trust, because it's history written before the events happened, not afterwards. Uh, and it is what we call prophecy. Not prediction. Prediction is guessing things. The weatherman predicts and sometimes he gets it wrong. But prophecy is a revelation from the sovereign God about what is going to happen in the future. And one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, who lived in the year uh, from about the time of 740 BC in the land of Judah, the bottom half of the land of Israel, he not only prophesied about his own people, Judah, but he also prophesied about the Gentile, the non-Jewish peoples in the neighborhood around him. And the part that we're looking at this morning is part of Isaiah's prophecies about the Gentiles and is a startling prophecy about the destruction of Damascus. If you look in verse 1, again it says an oracle concerning Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. Now, this is startling because Damascus is famous for being the oldest inhabited city in the world. 
It's never been uninhabited. It's never ceased from being a city. And so this has got a lot of people who are interested in Bible prophecy thinking about this for the future and how this prophecy is one day going to come to pass. Now, it's an amazing prophecy to think about because uh, Damascus is a very big city in in the east. It's 41 square miles. It's built on a a plateau about 2,200, over 2,200 feet above sea level. And it gets its name from its founder many years ago by the name of Dimshak. In fact, it's even mentioned in the book of Genesis in the, book, uh, in the passages about Abraham. You might remember Abraham had a servant called Eliezer of Damascus. And in chapter 14 of Genesis, Abraham even had to go into battle all the way up to Damascus. And that's recorded in secular history as well, interestingly enough. Uh, a man called Nicholas, who was a historian, wrote about this. And it's recorded in Josephus's. Uh, antiquity of the Jews. He makes reference to the other historian about Abraham, which is interesting. But it seems hard to us, doesn't it, to look at a city this big, so densely populated, so big, and think to itself, one day it's going to cease from being a city. It's a startling thing to talk about and think about. And uh, we don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But we can put two and two together from the passage because the passage doesn't say it will be destroyed by an earthquake or it will be destroyed by a meteor falling from heaven. It doesn't tell us, it just tells us it's going to be destroyed. But when we look at the structure of the passage and what happens later on, the conclusion we come to, and I think it's a safe conclusion, is that it comes about as a result of a conflict with Israel. Uh, Now, it's... Uh, an interesting thing because um, if you look down in the passage, down in verse 14, it says, in the evening, sudden terror before the morning, they are gone. And this passage here seems to suggest that they will come and they will attack Damascus at night. Uh, It will be a night attack. Now, that's something which makes no sense in the days of Isaiah. You didn't attack at night because you couldn't see and uh, you didn't want to uh, hit your own people. But this is an attack that seems to happen at night. And uh, we look in verse 14 again, and it says, this is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. And when you read that verse and put that into the equation, you realize it seems to be a response for something being stolen from Israel. Now, what is it that the Syrians, what is it that Damascus wants to steal from from Israel? Well, again, we're not told, but we can have a reasonable guess. And the reasonable guess is what they want to steal is land. It's land. You see, after the uh, Six-Day War, the nation of Israel occupied the Golan Heights. They, they, they lost it uh, to Israel. And the Golan Heights in the north of Israel, um, up a, about around the Galilee area, is very, very significant. About 450 square miles uh, of land. And it's very, very significant 
for Israel to hold that territory. The reason it's important is that it looks down from the heights. You look down on the rest of Israel, and so it's a military vantage point. And this was why Israel didn't want it to go back into the hands of their enemies after they defeated them in battle uh, and got the land back. And uh, so this is prime territory for attacking Israel, which they don't want their enemies to have. You can shoot down, and in, in the days of the 70s, you could put tanks up there, you could shoot down on the farms, on the kibbutz, and, uh, and on the different cities across the, uh, uh, the plain, uh, and you could take out city after city. Nobody would be safe from that point. The other side of it is it looks out towards Damascus and Syria. So it's a military vantage point, which actually lets you know when your enemy is coming. And it creates a buffer zone between Israel and Syria, which Syria doesn't want Israel to have a buffer. She wants to breathe down her neck. But Israel says, no thanks, we'd like to keep you at arm's length. And uh, having this piece of ground is actually protection for us. Well, they have tried again and again, and actually the UN uh, doesn't recognize this as being Israel's land. They say this was annexed by Israel. Actually, you lost it in battle. If the simple message is, if you don't want to lose the land, don't come against Israel in battle. You know? And uh, that's the lesson that Hamas is learning now, isn't it? Uh, but they, they hold that land. So we can make a reasonable assumption from this passage that perhaps they're going to come and try and take back the Golan Heights, which would give them uh, a military advantage and a great threat to the nation of Israel. It's interesting, many years ago when... Um, Benjamin Netanyahu was a defense minister, I believe it was. He was touring in America, and a pastor spoke to him about the Golan Heights and said, how much more land can you afford to give up in the Golan Heights? And the answer just came back in two words, not much, not much. And uh, that's uh, the situation that they want to hold that. Uh, There's also, obviously, the current situation with the Middle East and Israel's threats from her bigger enemies like Iran. And uh, Syria sides with Iran. She postures with Russia as well, interestingly enough, but she's closely allied with Iran. And through Syria... um, through, through, through Syria, they, they communicate a lot of weaponry through to Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's actually only 75 miles from Damascus to Beirut. And you go across the Bekaa Valley uh, where all the drugs are grown by uh, the Muslim terrorists. And uh, you have uh, uh, Lebanon over on that side there. So it's, it's where their enemies are coming down into Syria as well. And this also makes Israel uncomfortable about them being there. When Bashar Assad was crushing his own people back after the 2011 uprising, uh, his own regime was under threat. And Iran came in massive numbers with Russia. I think it was something like 603 thousand troops were put into Syria and in the area from these two sides to help support 
Bashar Assad. And so this is another reason why Israel might want to attack. It's the place where their enemies are massing their numbers. In fact, some of the bases that they have in, the, in this area are, are facing towards Israel. So Israel is constantly aware of this threat from Damascus. In fact, here's a fascinating thing. If you go to Megiddo, and we were talking about this just recently, there's a, a, an, a, an American, not American, is a, an Israeli Air Force base there, and you will suddenly see planes, and they're coming out the ground. They have an underground airport, and uh, they take off while still underground. I mean, how impressive is that? And they take off, but it's facing Damascus. Everything faces Damascus because that's where they say the threat is going to come from in the future, and they're very wary of it. And so this looks like this is how it's going to happen. It's going to be a war with Israel, and we can see the reasoning of it. Now, you say, well, that's just out in the Middle East. That's not going to affect most of the world. Actually, you're wrong. It will affect some 16 billion, not 16 billion, 16, uh, well, millions of people in the world. Uh, I forget what the statistics is. Millions of people who are Muslims. You see, Damascus holds a key place in Islamic prophecy as well and in the hadith which is not the quran but it's the sayings that are considered authentic uh, by the by the imams the hadith which are the sayings of muhammad it says allah will send the messiah the son of mary who is their version of jesus they call him Issa, but don't get confused it's not the jesus of the bible allah will send the messiah son of mary who will descend at the white minaret on the eastern side of Damascus. And so when Damascus gets destroyed, you're also destroying that prophecy. And you're undermining the fulfillment of Islamic prophecy and thereby undermining the Quran. So you can see what a big thing this will be uh, when this actually happens one day in the future. And I believe it will not only be significant for Israeli security and, and the situation in the Middle, in Middle East, but it will be interesting how that has effect on people's faith around the world as well. Now, I would be wrong if I told you that everybody believes this is all future prophecy. Actually, we can divide... Christians who study the word of God into two camps on this passage. There are those who see this as a historic passage which has been fulfilled in the past and there are those who see it as still to be fulfilled in the future. And actually both sides have good arguments. Okay, So if you're of a different position, I give you my respect. I'm not here to knock other people's views. Uh, the historical view says that this was fulfilled in 732 BC, not long after Isaiah prophesied this, when um, the Assyrians, don't get confused by Syria and Assyria, but Assyria, which was an empire around Iraq and that, came down and attacked Damascus. And that's actually recorded in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 9. And it says this, the king of Assyria compiled by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put Rezin, who was the king, to death. And many people say that's when this prophecy was fulfilled back then in 7300, 732 BC. The prophetic people who see this as future say, 
No, this is still to come. Uh, now, there's problem, and they say that this is a part of what Jesus was prophesying in Matthew 24 when he said that there would be wars and rumors of wars in the future. And part of actually the strength of that is the fact that Jeremiah also prophesied the destruction of Damascus as well. And Jeremiah was after 732. So if it was fulfilled in 732, why does Jeremiah back this prophecy up with his own words? And that's a, uh, an argument for the prophetic. Both have problems. The problem of the future people, like myself, is that when you read this chapter, a lot of the language is archaic, meaning it's, it's in the language that's suitable for Isaiah's day. It talks about altars uh, and, and things that are uh, typical of what was happening in Judah in the days of the prophet. But the problem for the historic people is this that Damascus, as I said, has never ceased to be a city. And what does the opening verse say? See, Damascus will no longer be a city, will become a heap of ruins. And so those are the two views. And you've got to choose which problem you're happy to live with. Personally, I'm happy to live with archaic language because I know that that can be explained. Isaiah was writing in the language of his day. But uh, I couldn't say that this prophecy hasn't been fulfilled uh, and won't be fulfilled literally. And that's the key issue. The Bible teacher Bill Salas, who's written a lot about this and other related passages, says this. Therefore, if Isaiah intended his prophecy to be interpreted literally, it remains an unfulfilled prophecy. And I think that's what I would have to say as well. If you believe this was intended to be taken literally, and I do. When Isaiah spoke about the virgin birth, a virgin shall give birth to a son, Isaiah wasn't speaking generally. He wasn't saying, well, you know, a virgin, it can mean anything. It can mean just, you know, a young lady. When Isaiah said a virgin shall give birth, it meant a virgin. When uh, Isaiah said, you know, uh, about the death of Jesus on the cross in Isaiah 53, everything he said happened literally. Not generally, it happened literally like he said. So I take the prophecies literally. And that, for me, is the deciding factor. So we have a prophecy here, which is, uh, I believe, startling for the prophetic implications for the future, the destruction of Damascus in the future. And if we're going to know about what the Bible says about the future, I think it's worth us understanding this passage. And let's be clear why we're doing this. We want to understand the Bible. You know, Paul said to the church in Ephesus that he preached among them the whole counsel of God. He didn't just preach, you know, the book of Ephesians and the book of Philippians, which are great books. He preached the whole counsel of God. And that's what we want to be like too, not just preaching our favorite bits. We want to get into all the corners of the word of God. But also because that knowledge then gives us an equipping for the future. One of my favorite missionaries in church history is a man by the name of Paget Wilkes. He was a missionary to Japan. And he used to say, knowledge is not only power. You remember that phrase by the man who wrote the Oxford Dictionary, knowledge is power. He said, knowledge is not only power, it's also peace. It's also peace. And it's true. When you know what's going to happen, gives you peace. If you're watching a football match and, and you've already heard the results and your team looks like it's losing and you know the result is that you win, you know what? You're going to sit back and you're going to say, it's all right. It's all right. We're going to be... The game may be tense. You may be interested in how the footwork plays out, but you're going to be relaxed. You're going to say, it's okay. I know what the outcome is. 
And this is what I want for all of God's people, uh, to know what the Bible says so we can face the future with confidence. So let's have a look at this passage and uh, see how it divides up. There's three things I see here, the cost of the war, the conversions from this war, and the conclusion of this war. First of all, then, let's consider the cost of this war in verses 1 through to 6. And we'll take a detour as well into Jeremiah 49. You know, some time ago, there was a a survey done among children in junior school asking them for their advice. What advice would they give other children? One girl called Hannah, age nine, said, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid, don't answer. (laughs) Uh, Michael, age 14, said, never tell your mum her diet isn't working. (laughs) Sounds like bad experiences, those two. Uh, A girl called Naomi, age 15, said, if you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. I think that's devious, isn't it? (laughs) You know, that's kids who've sussed it out. Well, if somebody was asking me, what advice would you give? I would say this, never go to war against Israel. Never go to war against Israel. Because you will come off worse in the end. Israel will still be standing at the end and you won't be. That's what I can tell you based on the Bible. They are the the eternal people of God. They are his covenant people and they're going to continue even right through to the new creation uh, where things are named after the names of the patriarchs. So my advice would be don't go to war. It'll be a costly thing. And we see here the cost to Syria because their capital city, Damascus, will no longer be a city. It will become a heap of ruins. It will be destroyed and uh, uh, annihilated. Now, when Je- Isaiah doesn't tell us much more about this here in this particular chapter, but Jeremiah does. If you want to just turn over to the next prophecy, Jeremiah 49, and verse 23 through to 27. We see the cost to Syria is a threefold cost of fear, fighting, and fire. Now, I'm not going to have time to expound every line in this, but let's go through it just briefly to gather what it says here. In verse 23 of Jeremiah 49, and this is Jeremiah's passage, by the way, where he's dealing with the Gentile nations. He says, concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are dismayed, for they have heard bad news. Now, Hamath is today the modern town of Hama, and it's 115 miles north of Damascus. So you're saying a long way away, the people are frightened about what's happened down there in Damascus in their country. And Arpad is a never 95 miles on from there. So a long way out, the ripples are running out among the Syrian people about what has happened. It says they are disheartened, troubled like the restless sea. Keep that in mind because Isaiah says the same thing uh, at the end of his chapter, as we will see. Uh, So we see the fear here. And Damascus, verse 24, has become feeble. She has turned to flee and panic has gripped her. Anguish and pain have seized her. Pain like that of a woman in labor. This is a a, a crippling type of fear that has come on the people uh, because of what is happening. And I wouldn't wish that 
on anybody. But verse 25 then gives us the fighting. It says, why has the city of renown not been abandoned, the town in which I delight? Surely her young men will fall in the streets. All her soldiers, or men of war, will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord Almighty. For some reason, the people know what's coming, but they don't evacuate, they stay and fight. And the soldiers, even though they're trembling, they're frightened, they stay and fight. And it's madness because they are going to be annihilated, as it says. And the fire is the third thing we're told about in verse 27. I will set fire to the walls of Damascus. It will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. And we're told that both the uh, walls, and by the way, the city of Damascus has ancient walls in it from all the eras of its past. In fact, it's one of the fascinating things because it's so long inhabited, history is rich in that place and you have ancient walls still in that city. It's a little bit like Jerusalem in one respect where they have ancient walls there as well. And it will consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. There's a helpful note on this in the cultural background study Bible, which says the expression, the palaces of Ben-Hadad, who you may remember was a king in the Old Testament in the story of Elisha, must be understood in the same way as one understands the house of Omri, or to refer to to the northern kingdom of Israel, or the house of David, to refer to the United Kingdom of Israel. Ben-Hadad here is synonymous with the Syrian royal house. So in other words, the houses of royalty uh, are going to be destroyed in this destruction. So that's going to be the great cost of this war to Syria. Now come back to the passage and we're going to see actually that it's not just Syria who this war is going to cost. Actually, it's going to be costly also for Israel. If you look in verse 2, it says the city uh, and, and their neighbors. It says, first of all, with Jordan, the cities of Aroa will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. Now, Aroa is on the other side of the River Jordan, uh, 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 roughly opposite the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, but it's, it's a, it's a centre that they worked out of. And it was, uh, it's a place which had other towns linked to it. So he says the cities of Aroa, and these will become pasture land. So it seems that it's not just an attack on Damascus. It seems Jordan also has been involved in this attack uh, Israel is responding to. And they will have nowhere left uh, for living, and it will just become pasture land in that area afterwards. But then in verse 3, it says, The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is Israel in the heart of the land of Israel. It became the name of the northern kingdom after the split uh, in the days of Solomon. But it says the fortified city will, uh, sorry, Rehoboam, uh, the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. And the emphasis here is on the fact that both Israel and Syria are going to suffer. They're going to suffer loss. Israel is going to suffer as well as Damascus is suffering, probably from the retaliations and the fighting that will take place. And uh, it will be so that the Damascus is measured in its losses against the losses in Israel. Now, what are the losses going to be like in Israel? In verse 4, it says, in that day, which is a prophetic formula used another three times 
and never two or three times, arguably, in this passage. Uh, but it says, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. Now, uh, this is the glory that was referred to back in verse 3 when it says the remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites. The glory is the soldiers. The soldiers. Even today, the soldiers, the military, are the glory of Israel. I heard somebody talking about it recently. They say, what you don't understand is that uh, certain military brigades, like because, they're all, because Israel is such a small country, that people are all related. They all do national service. They all have an appreciation of the military and the Air Force. And people who are brave and people who, who do great things, they, are, they become like the glory of the nation. But he's saying the glory here is going to fade. The fat of his body will waste. That's not talking about his great diet technique. It's talking about the fact that the nation is going to be thinned out. It's going to be thinned out of people. And he uses a different analogy then in verse 5. He says, it will be as when a reaper gathers the standing grain and harvests the grain in his arm, as when a man gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. There's going to be such terrible loss, it'll be like someone mowing down a field. It's going to be terrible. Yet some gleanings will remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. It's not going to be total uh, removal of all of the Israeli army, but there will be some left. And the analogy he uses is, is when they beat the, uh, the, the fruit out of the top of the trees. They use long sticks, but there's some they can't reach, and those still remain. And there will be some soldiers left at the end of this. So what we see in these verses is actually the cost of this war is going to be great to both sides. And it's a, it, it gives no pleasure talking about that, but it, it makes us realize these last days things we're talking about, at first they become exciting to us to look at, but when you stop and think about them, they're very sobering sometimes. And we should take them in that approach towards the things of God, and we should make them matters of prayer. This is why the gospel needs to go forward uh, among both nations for the saving of souls in both nations. Uh, it's something as well for us to realize about war and to pray about, that God would deliver us from war. You know, the reformers saw war as a judgment of God. Uh, when the nation went away from God uh, and God allowed war, it was a, a mark of, of his displeasure. And you know, war is increasing around the world right now. And I would go along with that assessment. I think it's a mark of God's displeasure. And it's a mark of the end times. And we ought to be a prayerful people about the cost of war. You may say to yourself, well, John, you know, this isn't very happy preaching. And, and for me, uh, you know, it leaves me feeling a little bit frightened. And it may be that somebody listening to this recording overseas perhaps has relatives or friends living uh, in Damascus or missionaries working out there. Or some of these sermons actually do get um, through sermon audio into different countries. So somebody may be saying, well, where does that leave us? I'll just tell you this. Put your trust in the Lord and pray. That's the best advice I can give you. Put your trust in the Lord and pray. And as we face the future, put your trust in the Lord and pray. I came across a beautiful testimony. I've got to share for your encouragement this morning. Uh, it comes from um, the wife of 
James Dobson. Do you remember, do you remember Focus on the Family, the ministry that was... Uh, uh, they, they were a stalwart organisation in America. I think they're still going. Had a radio programme that stood up for family values and so on. And James Dobson wrote a lot of books uh, on uh, parenting and family life and so on. And he used to travel the country. Well, his wife, Shirley Dobson, recorded this testimony. She said, when focus on the family was in its early stages and our children were young, my husband Jim was often traveling. I had grown accustomed to his absences and was never really frightened while he was away. After all, I knew God was protecting us. Jim and I had prayed for our family throughout our marriage and God always honored our simple trust with his protection. So even when Jim was away, I slept in peace, except once. One night, about two o'clock in the morning, I woke with a start. I was afraid, and I didn't know why. For a few minutes, it seemed like hours, I lay in bed worrying. Finally, I forced myself out of bed and sank to my knees. Oh Lord, I prayed, I don't know why I'm so frightened. I ask you to watch over our home and to protect our family. Send your guardian angel to be with us. I climbed back into bed, and in about half an hour, I was able to fall back to sleep. The next morning, our teenage babysitter, who lived across the street, came running over. Mrs. Dobson, did you hear what happened? A burglar robbed your next-door neighbor's house last night. And it was true. A thief had broken in, entered the couple's bedroom while they slept, and snatched the husband's wallet from a dresser. The burglar escaped with the family's vacation money, about $500. Then the babysitter told me the police had determined the time of the robbery about 2 o'clock in the morning, the same time I had awakened in fear. My mind reeled as I thought. If a burglar wanted to break into our house, I said, he would probably try to get in through the bathroom window near our children's bedrooms. There's a hedge and he'd be shielded from view, so let's go and have a look. When we walked to the window on the other side of the house, we saw that the screen was bent and the sill was all splintered. Someone had indeed tried to break in. The police later told me if the burglar had really wanted to get in, he would have done. So what had happened to stop him? I am convinced God protected us through my panicked prayer. Something or someone had discouraged the burglar from entering our house. I just want to share that testimony with you because, you know, in these uncertain days, it shows us the power of prayer and how we can put our trust in the Lord God, uh, even knowing the things like this which are ahead. Let's uh, see then the second thing, which is the conversions from this war in verses 7 to 11. And in verse 7, it says, In that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. They will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. In World War II, C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian theologian, was asked to address a group of troops who were about to go overseas to battle. And as he was taking the service for them and, and, and preaching them, he suddenly realized that they weren't really paying attention, and he stopped. And he said to them, forgive me, he said, 
but you all look very, very frightened. And they all nodded. And he said, can I ask you, is it because you're frightened you're going to die? And they nodded even more. And he said, well, I have news for you. You are going to die. The only difference is that death brings the reality of it. War brings the reality of it closer. But actually, he said this, war doesn't increase death. The death rate is still 100%. And he was right. And uh, he was making them think, actually, this is something that they had pushed to the back of their minds all the years, that one day they're going to die. But now war's here, now they're faced with it. And uh, I think this is what's going to happen among the Israeli troops and, and among the people of Israel at this time when this prophecy is fulfilled and they see such devastation in their own land as well as among the others. It's going to make them fearful and realize eternal realities. And as a result, what we're told here is that in that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Uh, In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually says, in that day, men will trust in their maker. And I like that, because that's what salvation is, to put your trust in the Lord, who is God. And this is what they're going to do. They're going to turn away from their atheistic views. They're going to turn away, because actually, atheism is rife among the Jewish people, amazingly. Even though, by and large, uh, the nation is, is religious, They're not all uh, religious. There's a large amount of atheism. They're going to turn their back on atheism. They're going to turn their back on false religion as well. Those who don't worship the Lord are going to turn away from uh, their false gods, their false altars, and so on. And they are going to put their trust in the Lord. And uh, this is, again, another reason why I think this is future, because I don't think this happened in the days uh, of Isaiah. Otherwise, the judgment wouldn't have come uh, from Babylon. But uh, this is what's going to happen in that day. You know, it's a a wonderful thing in one way, isn't it? How the worst times can bring the best results. And there can be, in the worst of times, a turning back to the Lord. And this is what seems to happen in this place. I saw an interesting story uh, in the media recently about a church in America in Knoxville, Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they had a church fire, a terrible fire, that burnt the whole building down. Now, uh, we have been in a church that got destroyed, and it is a devastating experience. It's your spiritual home, and and you love it, uh, where you worship God and meet with the people of God. And this poor church was destroyed by a fire. Uh, and when the people were called, the, the, the pastor and the leaders of the church were called by the police, they were called to go to the local school. And the church gathered at the local school and they were shown that everything had been decimated. Everything had been destroyed. There was just one thing that had survived. And that was the cross that was on the outside of the church wall. And so when they rebuilt the church and the sanctuary, they put the cross up behind the pulpit. And it's like saying, you know, when everything else goes, there's one thing that still remains, the saving power of the cross. And I think that's what Israel is going to find in this day. They're going to find the saving power of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I wonder, dear friend, if that's why God brought you here today. So you could hear that too. I don't know what's going on in all your lives at this time, what difficulties you may be facing, what battles you may be going through. But I want to tell you this. There's one who you can turn to who can give you eternal life in heaven through salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and give you strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And you need to turn to him. You need to do what it says here. In that day, look to the maker. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we were talking about, he is the maker with the children. uh, The Holy One of Israel. Look to him in faith. Rest your faith on him. Rest your faith on him. And as you do so, turn away from your idols, just like these people did. You know, this is what it said about the Thessalonians. They tell you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We have to get away from our idols and the things that are false and put our trust in the Lord alone. Now, not everybody in the nation did that. Uh, We'll do this when the prophecy is fulfilled. Verses 9 through to 11 talks about how others are going to uh, uh, to go astray. And uh, in the strong cities which they have left, um, the palaces will be abandoned like thickets and undergrowth and, and they will suffer. Um, and in verse, nine, verse 10, it talks about the fact that they haven't remembered the Lord, their rock, their fortress. And verse 11, it talks about uh, strange things to do with plants. This is a, a reference actually to religious fertility cults uh, making the, the, the crops grow, trying to make the crops grow. And uh, it seems that many people are going to turn to new age things like that instead. But there will be a number of people who get converted at this time. And that's the good news out of this difficult story of the destruction of Damascus. You know, the, uh, the preacher Charles Stanley, he said this, and I think this is worth, uh, I got this out of his study Bible. He said, Isaiah pictures a future time, but we can look to our maker and have respect for the Holy One of Israel right now at this very moment we can enjoy the blessings of intimate connection with god that's true this prophecy is a future prophecy but your time is now and the bible says the day of the lord is drawing near so come to the lord and put your trust in him today is the day of salvation Let's move on quickly to the last point and then we'll close our sermon. The final point here is the conclusion of this war. And the conclusion of this war, I'm afraid, is sadly more war. Because what will happen is it will fall like a domino to cause another uh, event to happen. It says in verse 12, Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. In the evening, sudden terror before the morning they are gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. So it leads to another war. And the nations, as we saw last week from the Daniel passage, are like a turbulent sea again. And they come rushing in upon the people of Israel. 
and it seems that there's an invasion uh, 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 driven by rage in verse 12 at Israel's uh, defense of themselves. I said this before, I'll say it again. People love the Jew who dies in the Holocaust. They hate the Jew who stands up and fights back. And when Syria attacks Israel and they stand up and fight back and they defeat Damascus, the other nations are not going to like it. And they're going to come down. And there's rage and there's roaring, but God rebukes them. It says in verse 13, God steps in and sends them back. So this shows us there are more tribulational, pre-tribulational wars uh, to come. We're going to be looking at that uh, tonight as we consider the Russian-led invasion of Israel. Did you know that? Russia's in the Bible. And that's not me making it up. And that's tonight as we look at the Gog and Magog war, God willing. But one thing that is just interesting to note about verse 13 is this all just also seems to link with another passage I've talked about, Psalm 83. And if you look at the Hebrew words, and I've put them in, in, uh, in, in different color here so you can see, the Hebrew words here are almost mirror image between the two. And they talk about the same things. Psalm 83, verse 13 to 15. Make them like the tumbleweed, galgal. Well, that's what we saw in Isaiah 17, 13. Oh, my God. Like the chaff before, the word before is panim, the wind, ruach, as fire sets the mountains, ha, that's the word for a mountain, ablaze. So pursue, that's radaf, them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm, sufar. That's almost the same as Isaiah 17. So it seems to suggest that Psalm 83 is also connected with this. So what a big thing is prophesied here in this passage. History written before it comes to pass. And uh, knowing these things, what should you and I do? We should put our trust in the Lord. We should pray, pray for ourselves, but we should also pray for others. Let's pray for the people of Syria. You know, one of the verses I was uh, thrilled about was, uh, and this is what I was going to show, uh, was um, Matthew 4:24, when the Lord Jesus Christ came in the Gospels. You know what it says? News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill, and he healed them. It's wonderful. We want news about the Lord Jesus to spread all over Syria again today and people to turn to the Saviour. So let's pray for that as well. Let's sing our 